telling some of the Bible department guys that this is unquestionably the second most intimidating, frightening place to preach. Uh, the worst I reserve for the seminary chapel, where some of the men that sat on my ordination council sit and listen. Um, the next worst is uh, the people that you know who know so much, and uh, any place is bad if there are sermon prep students. And I understand Dewey's class has this here. Take the outline part right now and mark a one, okay? My outline is not based on the text, because there's no text. It's not alliterated, uh, it's not balanced, and the points are not of equal length. So just get that stuff out of the way, and then uh, see if you can, see if you can uh, listen for the Lord's voice somewhere between the lines. The reason for my being invited to today is that this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. That has been celebrated annually since 1973 on whatever Sunday is closest to the anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision that prohibited states from regulating an abortion, regulating abortion, and in effect legalized abortion completely in America. I just ran across uh, this month in an obscure magazine you probably haven't read a little letter, fictitious letter, but very powerful. It was written by a 16-year-old girl named Delaine Hefner. I doubt if she's related to Hugh Hefner. She uh, penned this letter. Dear Mommy, I'm in heaven now, sitting on Jesus' lap. He loves me and cries with me, for my heart has been broken. I so wanted to be your little girl. I don't quite understand what has happened. I was so excited when I began realizing my existence. I was in a dark yet comfortable place. I saw that I had fingers and toes. I, I was pretty far along in my developing, yet not, ready to, not near ready to leave my surroundings. I spent most of my time thinking or sleeping. Even from my earliest days, I, I felt a special bonding between you and me. Sometimes I heard your crying, and I, and I cried with you. Sometimes you would yell or scream, then cry. I heard Daddy yelling back. I was sad, and I hoped that you would be better soon. I wondered why you cried so much. One day you cried almost all day. I hurt for you. Couldn't imagine why you were so unhappy. The same day, the most horrible thing happened. A very mean monster came into that warm, comfortable place I was in. I was so scared, I began screaming, but there was no sound. I guess they had you all pinned down because you never once tried to help me. Maybe you never heard me. The monster got closer and closer as I was screaming, Mommy, Mommy, please help me. Mommy, help me. Complete terror is all that I felt. I screamed and screamed until I thought I couldn't anymore. Then the monster started ripping my arm off. It hurt so bad, the pain I could never explain. It didn't stop. Oh, how I begged it to stop. I screamed in horror as it ripped my leg off. Though I was in such complete pain, I, I realized I was dying. I knew I would never see your face or hear you say how much you love me. I wanted to make all your tears go away. I had so many plans to make you happy. Now I couldn't. All my dreams were shattered. Though I was in utter pain and horror, I felt the pain of my heart breaking above all. I wanted more than anything to be your daughter. No use now, for I was dying a painful death. I could only imagine what terrible things they had done to you. I wanted to tell you that I love you before I was gone, but I didn't know the words you could understand, and soon I no longer had the breath to say them. I was dead. I felt myself rising 
I was being carried by a huge angel into a big, beautiful place. I was still crying, but the physical pain was gone. The angel took me to Jesus and set me on his lap. He said he loved me and that he was my father. Then I was happy. <clears throat> I asked him what the thing was that killed me. He answered, abortion. I am sorry, my child, for I know how it feels. I don't know what abortion is. I guess that's the name of the monster. I'm writing to say that I love you and to tell you how much I wanted to be your little girl. I tried very hard to live. I wanted to live. I had the will, but I couldn't. The monster was too powerful. It sucked my arms and leg off and finally got all of me. It was impossible to live. I just wanted you to know that I tried to stay with you. I didn't want to leave. Also, Mommy, please watch out for that abortion monster. Mommy, I love you, and I would hate for you to go through the kind of pain that I did. Please be careful. Love, your baby girl. That brings to an emotional level of understanding what abortion is all about. The evidence is pretty clear that a late-term abortion is pretty much like that letter describes it. Maybe you've seen the silent scream. Maybe you don't even need to. You don't have a strong stomach. My goal for today is to do something a little different from the standard Christian message on abortion. I'm not going to cite statistics and tell horror stories about women dying from abortion. Those things are real. They are important for us to consider. But I'm not going to act as if you need to be convinced that the unborn are human. If you believe that the Bible is God's word, just one simple reading of Psalm 139 will make you forever pro-life. It did it for me. I'm also not going to exegete a lot of uh, passages for you. Uh, if I had to title the message, I would title it Mature Pro-Life Thinking. And if I had to uh, pick a, a theme verse, I would choose 1 Corinthians 14, 12, which says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. I think we need to do some mature thinking as Christian people and as Christian leaders and future Christian leaders about abortion and infanticide and, and euthanasia in light of the scriptures that we already know. What does it mean to be a Christian pro-life person in the 1990s? And rather than the usual harangue, I'm going to presume you are already pro-life in your theology. What I want to do is challenge us to think through some strategy for how to be pro-life, how to put legs to that, how to make it work in the world in which we live. The pro-life movement is uh, anything but monolithic. Uh, on one hand, there are people like Dr. Bernard Nathanson, once big-time abortionist, now an avid pro-life spokesman. I've interviewed him. He's a religious agnostic. He is pro-life simply for medical reasons and because of what he's learned about uh, fetal development. On the other hand, there are many in the pro-life movement who are Roman Catholic, and while we share many convictions with them, their approach is not usually as rigorously biblical as ours. I've met and worked with Mormons who are active in pro-life activities. And with that much diversity within pro-life circles, I don't pretend to have the ears of everyone who opposes abortion or a euthanasia or infanticide, those things that comprise the pro-life issues. But I do think it's absolutely crucial that we who love the Lord act responsibly and effectively as we do our part on issues like this. 
This message, I hope, is my small contribution to the cause of trying to help us think accurately and to strategize wisely about this area. And I simply want to give you four suggestions for our mutual consideration. I'm probably going to ask some questions I don't have answers to, all neatly cut and dried. But I want to make four suggestions for our consideration and pray that a dialogue continues as long as necessary for us to get the job done that God has called us to. First of all, we need to be a well-disciplined army. We need to make sure that we have our camp in order before we go into battle. For some reason, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it appears to me that even in evangelical and fundamental circles, we have stopped saying the rather obvious fact that 99% of all abortion is a direct corollary of fornication. And it seems to me like we are assuming that the problem is going to go on and we're going to have to fight the battle on the issue of abortion rather than the issue of preventing pregnancy. And it would seem to me as if even the Christians in our world have given up teaching God's morality or taking it very seriously in a lot of cases. We sort of presume that that just comes with the territory of living in our society, that people are going to be immoral, and, and uh, we don't even seem quite as concerned about it in Christian circles as I think we, we should be. Just because we live in a society that happens to be a moral cesspool doesn't mean that we have an excuse to stop calling sin what it is. And most of all, as I said, we have to look at our own camp. We need to produce a generation of morally pure Christians. That's the responsibility of every generation of Christians. Let's be sure that we don't condone compromise within our own camp. You know, Josh McDowell and his Why Wait campaign has done some pretty extensive research in evangelical and fundamental church circles on sexual activity of, of teenagers. And if his research is correct, and I don't have any way to refute it, then there isn't really very much difference between Christian and non-Christian teenagers in our churches today in the percentages of those who are sexually active. And if that's true, we need to seriously reevaluate and consider retraining our own army. You're familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul gives three analogies of a Christian living the Christian life. He says in uh, 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. If we're going to be effective in a spiritual battle, and I really think that battling for the morality of our churches and our nation is part of the spiritual battle, then we need to recognize that our strength is going to be developed through discipline, as in the case of the soldier. No good soldier is undisciplined. He builds discipline into his life and has it enforced and reinforced. Our strength is also going to come through keeping the rules, as in the case of an athlete. How frustrating to give everything you've got and be disqualified because you broke the rules. And our strength is going to come through patience, as in the case of the farmer. I don't think I'm wired to be able to be a farmer. I don't think I could be happy with sticking something in the ground in the, in the spring and leaving it alone until the, the fall and harvesting. I want to pull it up and look at it about June 5th. But we've got to discipline ourselves and, and play by God's rules and, and practice that patience that we need. We need spiritual effectiveness over the long haul. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. 
And I think it's high time for us in American fundamentalism and evangelicalism to stop treating sexual sin as if it's an inevitable little oops of growing up. It's bigger than that. And my generation especially has to face the music. I did what I thought I'd never dreamed possible a couple months ago. I turned 40. I tried not to, but like the abortion monster, it got me. You know, what can I say? I found that it doesn't hurt too much, but it's also kind of made me reflect on my generation now that I'm approximately about half time. And I think that we, the, the parents of today, who are products of the 60s, and I think you can thank the Lord you didn't spend your teenage years in the 60s like I did. We who are the parents of today need to rethink our attitudes toward the mentality that my generation bought into. The mentality that first started saying, do your own thing. That first started saying as a philosophy of life, if it feels good, do it. And in particular, the Christians of my generation, and, and many have become believers out of the craziness of those days, but the Christians in my generation, the ones raising teenagers in the 1990s, need to start telling it like it is. I think the error of American Christianity that I've seen, at least in the years that I've been around, has been consistently to start adjusting our standards, or to, to keep on adjusting our standards, so that we're just a little more pure than society. And if the morality of society degenerates two points, it's as if we, we can feel just as holy as long as we stay ten points better than they are. But the morality of Christians, by and large, has been dropping off. I think we need to stop trying to figure out how bad we can be and still be okay, and instead start asking how good Jesus wants us to be. Shades of gray simply won't cut it in a world that has spent so much time in the darkness it's forgotten what white looks like next to the blackness of its own sin. We need to be a well-disciplined army with our own moral house in order if we're going to be a spiritually potent force. Judgment begins with the household of God. A second suggestion as we seek to formulate a pro-life strategy. Understand the enemy. Understand the enemy. We need to realize that the world in which we live does not share our worldview. When I was a little kid, uh, and when I even was a teenager, the society in which, I, in which I lived, even though I was not a Christian, the society that I lived in assumed a basically biblical view toward morality. Now, believe me, people still found excuses to fornicate, but it was the, it was the universal understanding that actions had consequences. And we understood that forbidden fruit was forbidden. It might taste sweet, but we knew there was something wrong with it. And if you ate and got caught, you had to accept consequences. But then we hit the 60s. And in that decade, with a lack of biblical backbone in most of our churches and public institutions, the sexual revolution swept this nation. And suddenly wrong was labeled right. Moral rules of all kinds were questioned, and in most cases they were just declared invalid. And so it's not like it was when I was in college, when you could share your faith with people by reminding them of things that they had heard their whole life. We now live in what has been called a post-Christian society, where we need to completely change the thinking of people by the grace of God, through the power of His Word and His Holy Spirit. There's simply no moral consensus in our world any longer that some things are wrong. 
You go tell people some things are wrong, and they'll look at you with this puzzled look on their face. What do you mean, wrong? Well, if it's okay for me, it might not be okay for you, but no such thing as absolute right and wrong. We need to understand the thinking of our moral enemies because they are sold out to our ultimate enemy, Satan himself. And the moral crisis in our country and the consequent holocaust of abortion that we are witnessing now is not simply the result of people failing to say no to instant gratification of their desires for sexual pleasures. It's more than just that. It's the snowballing result of a systematic plan to change the thinking of this nation. We need to understand the thinking of the engineers of thought in the enemy camp well enough to be able to debate it and to offer an alternative. You know, the organization that embodies the strategy that attacks us more uh, than any other entity and which has a stranglehold on public, public policy making concerning sexuality and its consequences is the organization called Planned Parenthood. They have a spit-shined public image. They make themselves out as champions of the poor, the underprivileged women, and uh, make them themselves out as having the answer to the abortion problem in America. And while its publicity says that it's all about choice and freedom, the fact is that that organization is really all about a social agenda which is a radical attack on traditional and biblical values. Everything I'm about to share with you is documented, and there's tons more uh, information available. Planned Parenthood has proposed, for example, this is a quote, that our government implements such things as compulsory abortion for out-of-wedlock pregnancies, federal entitlement payments to encourage abortion, compulsory sterilization for those who have already had two children, I was third in my family, and tax penalties for existing large families. That sounds kind of like Red China, doesn't it? It just happens that China is the place where Planned Parenthood's philosophy has been most thoroughly implemented. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, believed and taught and wrote that society should eradicate the poor, minorities, and the unwanted by use of contraception, abortion, and sterilization. Now, what do they say they champion? Poor, minorities, and the, the unwanted. Her call was, quote, for more children from the unfit, less, I'm sorry, for more children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the chief issue of birth control, she said. That sounds like some guy about 50 years ago in Europe, doesn't it? That was her moral and political and social agenda. Planned Parenthood would have us, Planned Parenthood would have us to believe that it is a privately funded, nonprofit family planning organization. Another quote, the truth is a vast proportion of Planned Parenthood's funding at every level, from the local level to the international level, comes right out of the American taxpayer's pocket. It has become, for all intents and purposes, an unofficial and thus unrestrained and unrestricted branch of the federal government. Contrary to their own literature and their constant claims, wherever Planned Parenthood's policies are, are implemented, sexually transmitted diseases increase, they don't decrease, and wherever their philosophy is adopted, unwanted pregnancy also increases. They have never demonstrated going into any area or any school or any neighborhood, uh, spreading their literature, talking their philosophy, and shown any improvement in any of those things. It always gets worse. That's because there's a philosophy behind it. Margaret Sanger was a radical socialist ideologue. She was obsessed with the issue of unbridled sex. The following is quoted in a biography of Margaret Sanger. 
Here's the mindset that founded the organization that attacks what we believe. Margaret Sanger was a Madonna type of women with soft brown hair parted over a quiet brow and crystal clear brown eyes. It was she who introduced us all to the idea of birth control and it, along with other related ideas about sex, became her passion. It was as if she had been more or less arbitrarily chosen by the powers that be to voice a new gospel of not only sex knowledge in regard to contraception, but sex knowledge about copulation and its intrinsic importance. She was the first person I ever knew who was openly an ardent propagandist for the joys of the flesh. This, in those days, was radical indeed, when the sense of sin was still so indubitably mixed with the sense of pleasure. Margaret personally set out to rehabilitate sex. She was one of its first conscious promulgators. Now, this is the woman whose philosophy, now spit-shined, legitimized, and tax-supported, is taught throughout our society. Planned Parenthood is the organization that's always invited into our schools to educate little kids, sometimes grammar school, on sexuality. Listen to one more excerpt from her biography. She was a zealous evangelist for free love. And we're talking the 1930s, 40s here. She finally died in the 60s and says this. Even in her old age, she persisted in proselytizing her 16-year-old granddaughter, telling her that kissing, petting, and even intercourse were fine as long as she was sincere and that having sex about three times a day was just about right, unquote. Here's one person's summary of what Sanger was all about. In her first newspaper, The Woman Rebel, now does that declare her intentions or what? In her first newspaper, The Woman Rebel, Margaret Sanger admitted that birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday of the tyranny of Christianity no less than capitalism. Today, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood is continuing her crusade against the church. In its advertisements, in its literature, in its programs, and in its policies, the organization makes every attempt to mock, belittle, and undermine biblical Christianity. Bad seed brings forth bitter harvest, and the legacy continues. Now, my point is this. The crisis of morality and abortion in this country is the result of much more than a mere gentle moral drift powered by the fallen nature of man. It is fueled by a satanically inspired plot to attack all that we believe. It is a spiritual battle. And if we don't understand that and don't realize we are going up against organized forces plotting to overthrow everything we believe and to set our kids free from what they call the tyranny of Christianity, I don't think we're going to take the battle seriously enough if we don't understand that. Platitudes and slogans won't turn the tide. We need to wrestle in the spiritual battle for souls. Nothing short of regeneration of souls and the visible daily living of biblically controlled lifestyles is going to make any significant difference. We just simply can't take it lightly. We need to realize it's all part of a great spiritual battle, and I pray that we realize the need to be willing and trained soldiers, not just unwitting bystanders of a war that's going on all around us. My third suggestion for developing this strategy, do battle on the proper battleground. Do battle on the proper battleground. Now the enemy has a strategy. The strategy is pretty simple. 
infiltrate the schools, the neighborhoods, the churches, the medical profession, the nursing profession, the political process, infiltrate anywhere that ideas are communicated and applied. That's their strategy. No place is off limits to them. Now, if Planned Parenthood is in the schools, I think the logical question to ask is, where do the Christians belong? If Planned Parenthood is producing almost all of the miracle on sex, uh, miracle, all the material on sex education, how do we plan to counterattack? Let's publish. More than anything else, we need a generation of Christians who are willing to live authentic Christian lives on enemy turf. I don't think we need more anti-abortion messages preached from our pulpits. I think we need more anti-abortion people in places of influence and decision-making where young minds can be influenced. We need more anti-abortion people in places like crisis pregnancy centers. One of my fellow evangelical free church pastors up in Santa Barbara has only been there, I think, less than a year, and he's already, by making some friends and making himself available, has gotten on the advisory board of a local hospital in his city. I have another Christian friend uh, who is, uh, has been a gynecologist for a long time, came to know the Lord in his, uh, in his 50s, who became chief of staff at his hospital where he practices. Both of those men have very quietly but effectively, without making any headlines, been instrumental in instituting policies at those two hospitals which no longer allow abortions to be performed. That's the kind of stuff we need to do. God grant that their tribe would increase. Another friend of mine is an economist who does a lot of speaking and writing, and he happens to be a member of a think tank. His group never makes headlines, but they relentlessly feed information to Congress and to the White House, information that is heard and processed, by the way, and their information is always in support of pro-family and pro-life and pro-Christian values. Let's stop the concentration on preaching at one another as if we aren't already converted on this issue. Let's instead realize that we live behind enemy lines. This is the enemy's territory. And let's infiltrate every corner we can with our influence. Like good medicine that has bad side effects, in my opinion, American churches are reaping some sad consequences of strategies that we've employed over the last 50 years. I think we have unwittingly isolated ourselves from having very much influence in the marketplaces of ideas. And I think we've abandoned the most strategic territory to the enemy, and we need to figure out how to gain some of that territory back. For example, being a parent, I understand wanting outstanding education and a Christian worldview for uh, our children. I hope my son is in the class of 2003 here at... Uh, Master's College. And out of our desire for a Christian worldview and a great education for our kids, back when I was just coming to the Lord in the, in the 60s and just a little before I came along, we, we in Christian circles spawned a massive Christian school movement. The earliest messages I heard as a Christian were about how you needed to have your kids in, in Christian schools. And, and the current homeschool movement is riding the coattails of that same mindset of wanting the best for our kids. That's a godly motive. That's the right thing to want for your kids. And there's nothing wrong with Christian schools. If there is, I'd better not say there is here. Uh, but I think we also need to treat the side effects of the medicine. 
the influence of millions of Christian families and the influence of tens of thousands of Christian teachers has been removed from the arena of public education. What's the result of that side effect? The result is that our enemies now have a virtual monopoly on the gateways to the minds of most of the children in our society. And since it's true that 85% of people who come to Christ make their commitment before the age of 18, I think we need as many Christians as possible in those places that can reach kids. We have a bad side effect of some good medicine. Salt and light in shakers and under bushel baskets isn't exactly what we're supposed to be producing. My challenge to you, you haven't sensed God's direction in your life, is that you might seriously consider a tent-making style of missionary work in a place like a public school or as a probation officer or in police work or maybe as a legislator. Go where ideas are exchanged and applied and go there and live an authentic Christian life. It took one man to change the policy of one hospital. It took one man to change the policy of another hospital. I can give you the names of three women who have single-handedly put out of existence the only abortion clinic in Boise, Idaho, where I pastored for 10 years. Three women did it. They never got headlines. They never made any fanfare. They legally, peacefully picketed. They put the place out of business. Took a few years, but they did it. The pay is usually lousy in places like that. The hours are unpredictable. The earthly benefits are questionable, but the eternal rewards are fantastic. My suggestion is simple. Let's fight the battle as it needs to be fought. If we're trying to save lives, if we're trying to redeem souls, I think it's best done by individuals carrying lights into dark corners. I think that's much more effective than launching missiles at nebulous targets from the comfort of our Christian trenches safely hidden in the walls of our fortresses and our churches. Come to church to be equipped and, and nourished and to, and to have your wounds healed and to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship and then let's go where the battle is. Fourth, finally, as we seek to develop a pro-life strategy for the 1990s, above all, we must maintain Christ-like conduct. We've got to have our own moral house in order. I said that. But with that, and assuming we're going to get to know the enemy well enough to know his strategies and that we're going to do battle in the right place, let's make sure we, we do it in a Christ-honoring, Christ-like way. For some reason, in just the last few years, I see Christians in the pro-life movement more and more resorting to the world's ways of doing things. Chuck Colson calls it the political illusion. And P, he points out correctly how so many people are abandoning the understanding that the weapons are, of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. That God has always worked through humble, godly people, not through mass media and that kind of thing. Whatever we do, it needs to be done in the proper ways. A logical question for us to ask is, if God is love, then how should God's people act when they deal with others? I think the answer is pretty simple. With patience, kindness, without bragging or arrogance, never unbecomingly, not allowing ourselves to be provoked, willing to suffer wrongs, never rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth, willing to bear all things, hope all things, and endure all things unfailingly. 
we can't act that way, we're not acting Christianly. Can I make Christian into an adverb? I, I just did it. Uh, if it's not legal, gong me, okay? Another question I think we need to ask. If the Holy Spirit is the power within us, then how should we think and act in any circumstances in which we represent the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it needs to be done with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Question, how does a person who believes that the Bible is the word of God evaluate any belief or any strategy or any organization? Answer, we ask a simple question, is it biblical? Is it thoroughly biblical? Francis Schaeffer is famous for preaching that God's will must be done in God's way. The ends don't justify the means. How we serve the Lord is as important as the fact that we serve him. It seems to me that God's way has always been to work through godly individuals strategically placed by his sovereignty in the world of unbelieving men and women. Look at the great Bible heroes. They were where God put them. Frequently, one person, or a family, or a handful. Now, I mention this in the context of abortion because I see a lot of Christians resorting to some highly questionable strategies when it comes to evaluating those strategies biblically. If some Christians feel it's necessary to engage in civil disobedience to protest abortion, I can accept that. I'm not personally convinced that that's necessary. I'm not personally convinced that that's the best and the wisest strategy at this time. But I'm also not the judge of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I certainly have room for somebody else's conscience to come to a different conclusion. The day may come when our government may tell us that two is the limit in our family. And I may have to choose to disobey that. But that's way down the line. But I do say this. If my brothers and sisters are going to practice civil disobedience, I'm going to call upon them to do it biblically. To break the law for the sake of your conscience is one thing. But to resist arrest when a police officer says, come with me, that's sin. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 don't leave much doubt about that. To be arrested for your convictions, that's one thing. But to refuse to give your name when you are arrested is to sinfully scorn the authority of a minister of God which is what Romans 13 calls the civil authorities. And those who languish in jail today because they've made a decision to block abortion clinics and then they've resisted arrest and then they've lied by saying that their name is Baby Doe, they simply can't say that that jail time is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Not because the motive is wrong and not because I'm excusing abortion, but because the strategy isn't biblical. And if we are ever called to civil disobedience, we are also called to accept the consequences joyfully as the will of God, even if we think it's unjust. A year ago this month, I debated Randall Terry, the founder of Operation Rescue, on the radio. Uh, based on what he said to me and the attitudes I sensed in what he said, and then from reading his book, which I did not have a chance to read till after the conversation, I predicted some of what has happened now that several rescues have taken place. When I had this conversation with him, there had been no rescues in Southern California. It had just gotten started in Atlanta and a few other places and was starting to spread across the country. And unfortunately, some of the things I predicted are now reality. I predicted that the focus was going to be upon allegations of police brutality as much as on abortion. 
I predicted that people would be debating the appropriateness of the jail sentences given to the protesters as much as they would be focusing on the Holocaust of abortion. That's what the headlines are about. The last several news reports that I've heard about Operation Rescue have had to do with police tactics, police brutality, and the jail sentences. Nobody's talking about the fact that little people are dying. In the spirit of seeking to honor Christ in all that we do, I think we've got to ask some tough questions when we strategize and when we evaluate a strategy. And here a year later, I'm not happy that what I predicted was going to be a negative backlash from Operation Rescue is here. I'm not glad that I was right. I wish that it was all positive. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is the pro-life movement and the reputation of Christians better off now than it was before Operation Rescue came? Are people in general looking at our Christian leaders in pro-life activities and noticing that powerful spirit of holiness? Is there a winsomeness and a humility and an irresistible attraction to the people that are doing these public things in the name of Christ? My fear is that we are being viewed more as angry protesters than we are as servants of Almighty God. And that grieves me. Frankly, I'd rather be confused with Jesus and his apostles than with Vietnam War protesters. And that's more of the analogy that I keep hearing. I think it's high time that we stop trying to outdo the world at its own games. It's time to stop seeking headlines and start seeking spiritual fruit. It's time to give up on trying for mass public high-speed impact, which is always shallow and fleeting. It's time to concentrate on saving lives and saving souls, and God still does that the way he's always done it, one at a time. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. Do you know that all of my radio programs I've ever done on abortion, and all of the sermons that I've preached, and all of the messages that I've given, and, and the public rallies that I've been involved in have not saved one single life from abortion, but one-on-one, -on -one, talking with young women, I've been privileged to arrange about a dozen adoptions in my ministry. Never the mass appeal, always the one-on-one. -on -one. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. Ultimate solutions are personal and wise strategies are biblical. It's true, we need a massive education project. It's true that we need to take a public stand on issues, but most of all, the war is fought and won or lost in the trenches, one person at a time. I'm a little bit passionate about this. I never set out to be a pro-life pastor of the year. You know what I did to earn that? I returned about six phone calls during the year, did two radio programs on abortion, that's all. Now, if that's pastor of the year material, that tells me that we better light a fire under a whole bunch of other pastors. Several years ago, one lone seminary student struggling to put bread on the table, a guy you've never heard of, faithfully sacrificed time he could ill afford and energy that was running low in serving a very small flock while he was in seminary, in one of several house churches in a poor area of Los Angeles, a place you and I would not feel comfortable to walk. Through a member of his church, 
that young seminary student met a troubled young woman under some intense financial pressure, pregnant, confused, frightened, and abandoned by the hormonal hero who had told her what she wanted to hear and then disappeared when she told him he was, she was pregnant. He spent hours and hours listening to her, praying for her, praying with her, gently counseling her, showing her the scriptures. I don't know how many times he met with her, but it was over and over and over. He just kept loving her. Finally, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And that led to more and more hours and hours of counseling and listening and praying. And then he helped her to make the decision to commit her unborn child to the Lord and to seek out a home for that child with a loving Christian mom and dad who would adopt him and who would give him their best shot at, at parenting. I'm a father today because of what that one unsung hero did. That's my son who was born to her. He understands abortion. And he understands and he prays and he thanks God for a woman who responded to the word of God and chose life instead of abortion. That faithful, obscure pastor and the brave decisions made by that baby Christian woman changed my life. And that's how lives are changed and neighborhoods and cities and states and countries. They're changed just like that, one at a time by the grace of God administered through faithful children of his. Let's make sure our army's in order, okay? Let's understand the enemy well enough that we can perceive the strategy and counteract it. Let's make sure that we do battle on the right battlegrounds. We can't do it by launching bombs from our fortresses. We're going to have to go quietly with our lights into the darkness. And let's make sure that whatever we do, it is biblical. I don't think that God is calling every one of you to be actively, personally, aggressively involved in the pro-life ministry. There are many other good things that you can do, and God may call you to that. I think he is calling you to be pro-life in your theology and in your commitment and in your support and encouragement of those who are actively involved in this, in this battle. But I'll tell you what, if you're open to a challenge, listen to the Spirit's voice in your life and consider serving with the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Newhall. Clyde will give you more information about it if you want it. There'll be the people that are signing you up for the Walk for Life in uh, the Student Center after chapel and around lunchtime today. They'll talk to you about it. Maybe one, two, five, ten women in this audience ought to be serving there. Listen if the Spirit prompts you, will you? And I'll tell you what, the safest, most non-confrontive thing you could ever do to take your first step in the pro-life arena would be to walk in that walk for life. I'll be your cheerleader. I'm going to sit down at the park and uh, do a three-hour live remote radio broadcast. We raise an extra few thousand dollars doing that every year. Gets me out of walking, um, among other things. But I'll tell you what, if you're a master's college student and you go sign up for that walk and you bring your 
list of supporters to me, I'll sign it. I'll sponsor you. Can't promise it'll be a huge sum because I'm not sure that a whole bunch of you won't take me up on it. <laughs> but I'll sponsor you. And just find out that there really is a way to get behind the people that are out there in the right battleground. Let's pray.